Hello sword people, welcome to the Sword Guy podcast. This is your host, Dr. Guy Windsor, consulting swordsman, teacher and writer. Join me for interviews with historical fencing instructors and experts from a wide range of related disciplines as we discuss swords, history, training and bring the joy of historical martial arts into our modern lives. I'm here today with Stephen Fick, who is a historical martial arts instructor and a fight choreographer, and also an old comrade in arms since we met in Edinburgh in the 90s. He founded the Davenrish European Martial Arts School in Santa Clara, California in 2000, and it is still going 22 years later. We will definitely be talking about how he managed that. Academically, he is perhaps best known for his interpretive work on Joseph Swetnam, and we'll be talking about that. And he's also well known for his armoured combat with a longsword, specifically half-swording. So, you can find his school at swordfightingschool.com. I'm very glad I got the swordschool.com URL before <laughs> before that. Um, and without further ado, Steve, welcome to the show. I'm so glad to be here, my friend. It's, it's been ages, isn't it? It has, and it's always a pleasure to talk with you and hang out with you. Aww. <laughs> yeah, well, we've been friends now for more than half my life. Yeah, we met in 98 or 99. Something like that. Uh, so, just to orient the listeners, whereabouts are you in the moment? Are you in Santa we, Clara? I'm in Santa Clara, California, right by the San Jose International Airport. Okay, that's so convenient. We are about uh, 40 minutes south of San Francisco, mm-hmm. so right in the right in the heart of Silicon Valley. Aww. That's fantastic. So, lots and lots of very rich, annoying people driving Tesla. Yes. So, I have lots of techies in my school. And okay, one of the things that is fun about it is because I have so many techies and engineers, they love the technical side of the right. art. So, more sure. than the crash and bash, they want the hows and the whys. Okay. And that's one of the things I love, 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 love talking about. Okay. Well, we'll definitely dig into some of that. Um, but let's start at the beginning. When we first met, pretty much all you did was armored combat. Uh, so yeah, how did you get started with that? When I was 18, I was invited. I went to a Renaissance fair. And then uh, just before I turned 19, I was invited to a fight with another group that was in armor and I had no clue what was going on. I thought I was going to be out of armor and just run around with my little foil and poke them in holes. I didn't realize they were going to put me in armor as well. (laughs) Okay. So they put me in a suit of armor that didn't fit me, gave me this monstrously heavy sword because we made them all out of leaf springs at the time. So these beasts... <laughs> I remember leaf spring swords. Oh, my God. 10 yeah. pounds. 10-pound swords is what we fought with. That's like nearly three times as much as they're supposed to weigh. Oh, right, right. But it's all we had access to. Yeah, sure. And no, I remember. So they, the only instructions I got my, for my first fight were, they're going to try to back you up. Don't let them. So I screamed and ran at them. And he never used his sword on me once. He hit through me three times. And wow. I was hooked. 
But one of the things I love most about what you and I do uh, this weekend, my the guy that I had my very first fight with was staying at my house because he was in a rugby game. Oh my god! So I got to spend the weekend with my friend, who was my very first sword fight. Wow! And he threw you over his hip three times. Yes. In armor. In armor, and that's it, how it I got introduced. when you hit the ground. Yeah, really but when you're 18, you kill <laughs> yeah, <true>. quickly. <laughs> I bounced well. <laughs> yeah, okay. So, um, and that kind of got you into, what, sort of Renaissance Fair type armored combat stuff, or was it something right. historical? It, no, it was all uh, crash and bash. Uh, so... <laughs> It was kind of like Battle of the Nations, right? but with less rules. Okay. Uh, I mean, at one point, I remember one one time I had a guy reach into my... We had no gorgets. Right. And ocular like this, I watched a sword go up one guy's nose one time. Of course. Uh, I had one guy reach into my breastplate and try to squeeze my trachea to knock me out that way. And so I wiled away the time while he was trying to choke me out by stabbing him in the groin with a trident. <laughs> so let this be a lesson to anybody listening. <laughs> if you want to choke out Stevie, what you have to do is take away his trident first. <laughs> so that's how I grew up and that's how I learned to fight. There okay. is old instructions written uh, by Geoffrey de Charnay, one of the greatest knights of Christendom in the 14th century. And some of his advice to young knights was, before you go to war, you need to, he puts it, you need to hear your bones crack and see your blood run in the lists. And that's My- how I learned. That's so. That's how I grew up in the European martial arts. You know, I've often told my students, I've broken bones doing this so that they don't have to. Yeah. I I like to tell my guys, pain is the best teacher. Ideally, somebody else's. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Yeah, because I'm not a fan of, like, pain during training. I mean, if you hurt, if something hurts, you're probably doing it wrong. But, yeah, there's there's a certain, um, I don't know, getting whacked with a sword commands your attention in a way that a verbal instruction does not. It is true. And there should be, it needs to be safe, It, but it also needs to have an element of respect. I don't want to say fear. I don't want to say fear, but yeah, respect and edge. Uh, Okay. So I think that's important. Okay, so how did you get from Crash and Bash to a pretty sophisticated interpretation of Fiore's armored combat plays. So what happened was in, I got married in 98 and for a honeymoon, we went to Europe to Edinburgh. And that's where we met. That's where we met because I was there in like 96 and I wandered into this little tiny shop on high street and yeah. met this crazy Scotsman making shields. Okay. And that's where I met Paul. Right. 
And then in 98, we went back for our honeymoon for two weeks. Mm -hmm. I took my wife, my sword, my dagger, and came back with my wife, my dagger, and two swords. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) That's where we met. And then in 99, I I knew I needed to learn more. And so I went back with my bride, and we retired for six months. I remember. You came visit me in Finland then. Yeah, so that way I I needed I needed a master and I knew it. And I went to Europe to find a master. And that's where I got to learn with you, with Paul, with Gareth, with everybody in the DDS. And right. I competed, I studied with you guys and I competed in everything I possibly could. And that's where we did our reenactments and our tournaments and that's yeah, where I, I remember you, you would fight anybody, anytime with anything. Yes. And yeah. because I believe in the concepts, understand the concepts and you can use any tool because right. your head is your weapon. Yeah. And okay. uh, so that's why I went to Europe and that's when the transition really began. And that's also when I was uh, met Jared Kirby for the first time. Oh, right. Yeah. And he had a he was just back from Italy, and he had a copy of Dur and a copy of Fjord. And okay. I looked at Dur and I looked at the pictures. I go, "How did he get there? Why is he doing right. that? That makes no sense at all." I looked at Fjord. I go, "Oh yeah, I've done that. I've done that. Oh, I've had that one done to me. I didn't like that." <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so I recognized the stuff in Fjord because it's the way that I learned through trial and error. It's similar to what I learned in trial and error. And so that's why I focus on Fiori in my studies, because it's things that I learned the hard way. Right. I mean, Albrecht Dürer's book, I mean, it's a lot, it's really good. There's lots and lots of really useful stuff in it, but it's not, it's not nearly as explicative as Fiori. And it's it's a lot more, there's a lot more fancy stuff in it, whereas Fiori is pretty much straight to the point. Yeah, Fiori is battlefield stuff and don't die. And because of the way I learned, I mean, when you got a guy reaching into your armor trying to choke you out by squeezing your trachea, <laughs> it, it gets to be an interesting fight. I mean, at one time yeah. I had a guy's sword slide into my breastplate. So I had his sword, I could feel it against my chest. And then he hit through me. So wow. These were, these were some crazy fights that we had. And it, it's very similar to what Fiore teaches. And I just, I, it resonated with me. Yeah. Huh. Interesting. So you've been studying Fiore since what, about 2000? Yeah. Yeah. About 2000 is right, right after I, Got back from you, I started, or from the UK, I started really working on understanding it from a practical standpoint. Right. And, okay. On that six month retirement vacation thing, um, you came to visit me in Finland, I recall. Because I, yes. I was in Finland briefly. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I have to mention, I think there was a moment there where with no clothes on we went into the lake 
And then we came out of the lake and it was freezing cold and we stood on these rocks and we swung swords around and there was like a, okay, this is what we should be doing with our lives moment. Right. Yeah, it was, it was existential. Yeah. Looking over the lake, I mean, it, it everything felt right. Yep. It was an amazing experience. One that I still tell people about regularly. Except for the whole butt naked over the lake kind of thing. <laughs> well, I mean, but now all the listeners have heard the whole kind of... Because the thing is, okay, let's just put that in a little bit of context. In Finland, taking all your clothes off does not mean anything like what it means in the UK or the US, right? Right. Finns, I mean, I've been to parties in Finland where the sauna was on, of course, because it's a party. Why would you not have a sauna on if you have a sauna? And so people were going to the sauna during the party and people would like to sort of wander up to the buffet table and help themselves to food or whatever, literally stark naked and dripping wet. And no one thought anything of it. Yeah, it's just, so, it's a different, different kind of, different culture. Uh, yeah, and it was being there in the woods, out freshly out of the sauna, out of the lake, just the everything felt right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And now look okay. at where we are. I know, I know. So what actually prompted you to start your own school? I was actually a firefighter. I don't know if I ever told you this. Yeah, I, I, I knew you used to be a firefighter, yeah. I was a firefighter EMT. And then I left where I lived to move up to the Bay Area to marry my bride, Susan. And I was up here after we got back from the U- from Europe I was in training and testing to go back into fire. And as I was testing, one of Susan's friends asked me if I could teach her 15-year-old son sword fighting. And then he brought some friends. And now all of a sudden, I've got a group of young people that I'm teaching sword fighting to. And I had to make a decision. Did I want to be a sword fighter or a firefighter? And just as I had this group coming together, I got called back for a second interview with the fire department. So it was a real question, sword fighter or firefighter? Why not both? Because as a firefighter, I would be uh, out of the area for months at a time. Ah, okay. So I couldn't do both. Okay. And I think I made the right decision. So you decided sword fighter. Clearly. I decided sword fighter. Did you did you mention that in your second interview or did you just not go? Uh no, I uh I was called back. I just with all the other people I just didn't go because I right. made the decision. Okay. You know, to follow my dream, not my expectations. But, you know, it's a funny thing. Like, kids growing up, you know, one of the things kids traditionally want to be is they want to be a fireman, yeah. right? Because it's cool and brave and you save people's lives and you put out burning buildings and you climb up ladders and you have a kind of armor and stuff, right? It's So you've got to be firefighter first and then switch to being sword fighter. That's, that's a pretty good selection of careers. It's actually, it went the other way. I was a sword fighter. Okay. And then the company that I fought with broke up and I lost all my best friends. Hang on. So were you getting paid to do that? Yes. 
Oh, right. Yeah. No, no, I wasn't getting paid okay. to sword fight. I okay. was doing the Renaissance fairs, tournaments. Right. And before that, I was in the army. And then I was traveling doing these sword fights. And when you're in a atmosphere that, like the military or firefighting or fighting in full armor, you hold your friend's life in your hands because sure. you need to be in control. And then when all my and, – and then, of course, also the adrenaline of being in a fight. Yeah. And then the company broke up and I was lost. I needed that camaraderie. Mm-hmm. And so I became a firefighter to find it. It was either a firefighter or a police officer. And I went with firefighter. Yeah. Probably more camaraderie in firefighting than – Yeah. There's, there's yeah. less personal interaction. People – yeah. It's a bit complicated being a police officer. And – I wanted to be the hero. You right, know, the knight, the hero, the thing. Yeah. So firefighting was perfect for it. But then I went from sword fighting to firefighting and back into sword fighting. Okay. So um, you just you had this group of teenagers and you were teaching them sword fighting. How did you transition that into a business that's been going now for 22 years? Like every school mm-hmm. club, I started in my backyard and in parks, yeah, and then and and my garage. Uh, then as it grew, I outgrew those areas, and so I started looking around. And I think I had the first full time dedicated Western martial arts school in North America. Because I rented a 3,000 square foot back end of a fruit packaging plant. Okay. So I had 3,000 square feet that smelled of pineapple, onions, and guano because there was bats. Okay. And it's still – some of the people that were there still refer to it as the bat cave because they're still associated with my school. Okay. Um, are Are you still in that same space? I am not. I've moved. Okay. We'll, we'll take this chronologically. Um, but okay, so yeah. you found this space and you rented it to run your school out of. Yes. Okay. When was that? Do you remember the date? That was 2002. Do you remember the month? Uh, I want to say it was spring. So probably okay. April, May. Okay. Yeah. That's about a year after I got my space in Helsinki. Nice. Like I got mine in June 2001. But yeah, we're, we're, we were very early to be getting a full-time dedicated space. Yeah, yeah. Because everybody out, out before this, and still very common, we people that run clubs rent space from dance studios or other martial arts schools. Yeah. Or, or in my is, case, I, I started out renting school gyms, like high schools oh, and primary schools and yeah. whatnot. Yeah, I couldn't do that because... California, U.S. doesn't really rent out very well like that. Not for okay. regular. Sure. Uh, okay, so so you rented this space, and then what happened? So, uh, I was there for a couple of years, but then I had to move after the second time I had to call 911 for somebody because it was not in a good part of town. So, I had to call emergency uh, services. For other people, not your students. Yeah, for other people. Okay. Uh, so it was time to move. 
Yeah, sure. So I I moved to a a warehouse that I was in for a year or two, and then they tore it down and built condos. So I had to move <laughs> out of that one. Yeah. Right. Then from there, I moved into a warehouse on a street called Nutman here in Santa Clara. And I was there for about six years. And during that time, I actually rented the warehouse next to me as well and tore the wall down between the two, which to follow the sequence of how everything should work, the first hole put in that wall as we were tearing it down was made by a mace. <laughs> so you thought, hang on, this wall is frangible. Let's just smash it down. <laughs> yes. So that's how we opened up the two warehouses. Uh-huh. And then I outgrew that. So I moved to another place, which was uh, only about two blocks away, was there okay. for another five or six years. Mm-hmm. Outgrew that and then moved to my current location, which is 8,700 square feet. Bloody hell, that's enormous. It, it's massive. We have indoor archery range. We can <laughs> throw axes. We have an axe yeah. range and a knife range. Uh, once a month, we, we also built modular walls. So once a month, we are also an airsoft field. Oh, and we have games that we can set up the walls to set to make maps and rooms mm-hmm. and because they're modular the players never know what they're going to walk into so All right. it's impossible mm-hmm. to memorize the map so do your s does your your airsoft thing is that basically a separate club that you're running out of your school or do you rent it to an airsoft club or how do you do that uh, i run it uh okay. we we run it it's uh we're called the DSOC kill house Davenridge okay. Special Operations Command. <laughs> of course. So we are we are the kill house. Cool. And um, uh, just just to put this in perspective, okay, eight thousand seven hundred square feet is approximately eight hundred and fifty square meters, something like that. That is gigantic. That is three and a half times the size of my salon Helsinki. We have. A uh, five thousand square foot training floor, yeah. Uh, large armory that is floor to ceiling weapons. Mm-hmm. A library with about fifteen hundred books in it. You better have my books in there, sir. Of course. Oh, good. Uh, Otherwise, this will be a very short conversation. <laughs> <laughs> uh, as well as a padded knife and grappling room. That sounds um, impressive. So, okay, business-wise, yes, eight thousand seven hundred square feet is not cheap anywhere. It is not. Okay, so if you're up for talking about it, sure. One one, one thing I'm very keen on doing is because a lot of people think, oh, okay, yes, I'd quite like to start a club, or you know, you know, I'm fed up with my day job. I want to teach historical martial arts for a living, but there is practically no. Well, there are very few people who have actually done it successfully, and you and I would be two of those people. 
So how how did you make it work from a business perspective? One of the things I like to do, I'm glad you asked this. I like mentoring people that want to get into the business side of it. Yeah, me too. It's one of my goals is when you tell somebody that you do martial arts, they say, cool, Eastern or Western. Right. Yeah. And uh, so what I do is one of the things I tell people right off the bat is look outside of your industry because there is so much information that people have worked on, tried, been successful, also tried and failed. Find that information, utilize that information and adapt it to our industry. So you're saying like find a successful model and copy that and adapt it as necessary to your specific conditions. Yes. My wife is a realtor and she is a member of a coaching company that I was also a member and taking professional coaching to build my business. And while it was real estate, I was able to take their techniques and their philosophy, adapt it to the school and build the school. And we currently have about a little over a hundred full-time weekly students. Yep. As well as I run workshops that on week, one weekend a month, we run separate workshops. We've got another 15, 20 people that are regulars to that. Uh, we also run the DSOC Kill House, which brings in another avenue of income. Mm-hmm. And I also work with businesses around the Bay Area to run their team building events. I've done a little bit of team building, and honestly, I didn't like it. Yeah, I, 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 um, they, they, they come at it from such an odd perspective that it just it doesn't work well for me. So one of the things I like can, about team building. Yeah, can I just come come yeah. back to the real estate thing? Yeah. Okay. Re- the business of real estate is somebody wants to sell their house, somebody else wants to buy it, and a real estate agent either works for the seller or for the buyer, or in Finland is a kind of neutral party in between, um, and basically connects one one time buyers. You know, I mean, people buy a house maybe once every. If you buy a house every two years, you're you're weird, right? Or you're yeah. a professional flipper. Right. Yeah. Much we say every ten years, so you've got one sale every ten years with that particular client. Whereas you have students who are coming weekly, maybe several times a week, for a kind of continuous thing. So how I don't see any relationship between those business models. Educate me, Steve. Educate me. Regardless of what your industry is, mm-hmm. the only reason somebody's gonna work with you is because they trust you. So what you're really selling is yourself and your relationships that you can develop with those people. Because if they don't trust you, they're not going to want to work with you. In real estate, it is often the biggest financial choice that some people ever make. Because they only buy one house and they live in it for their whole life. 
So you, you want to really trust the realtor that they're not going to lie and steal and just leave you in a really bad place. Sure. For you and I, we need to sell ourselves and our trust because they, the people that we're working with expect us to educate them, but also to keep them safe Absolutely. and yeah. to have fun. Because if you're not having fun, why would you pay for something every every month? Right. Uh, so you are. We are in the business of relationships. Okay, I can see that, and that's what I learned from the real estate industry. Huh. And there's a big difference between people that are in the real estate industry for the check. Versus people that are in the industry for the relationship. My wife is a generational real estate agent. What that means is she's that. worked with people that bought houses, then worked with their kids, then worked with their grandkids. Wow. Because if you're going to buy a house, go to Sue because she'll look after you. Yep. Or if right. you want to study martial arts, go to somebody that will develop the relationship, not just, I'm going to see you at class, and then that's the last thing I'm going to see of you until next class. Okay. So, I mean, one thing I always did when I was running my school in Helsinki was we had some regular like party nights and pub nights and things like that, so that students were socializing outside of yep. the school, which is a kind of fairly obvious and basic interpretation of what you just said. Um, are there any like specific ways of doing this? That There certainly are. In fact, uh, one of the things in the coaching company that they talk about is client appreciation parties. Okay. And that's a way to bring, and you categorize your database. You have A pluses, A's, B's, C's, D's. Okay. A pluses are the people that in the real estate industry, uh, refer you. Okay. Multiple times. A's yep. are people that refer you sometimes. B's are people that you can train to refer you. C's are people that, uh, you can bring up to that B level. And D's mm -hmm. are people to delete. Okay. For us, A pluses are our current students. A's are our leads. B's are people that we meet and talk to. And so I have client parties, although we call them a solstice feast. Okay. We have a summer solstice feast and a winter solstice feast. And we light the school by candlelight, eat, drink, mm -hmm. and lie to each other. <laughs> okay. Uh just a lot of fun. We've got and, it's like a medieval feast. So, and you you encourage people to bring their friends, uh, family members. These ones are okay. just for the students, okay, and their families. But then we okay. do other things where uh, we have lots of birthday parties for people in the school that we bring all their friends in. Mm -hmm. We have uh, other events that we're. We do charity parties mm -hmm. uh, with, you know, come in and 
you get tickets, you buy, it, this is a new one that we're working on. You come in, you buy tickets, and you turn in a ticket for throwing an axe. You turn in a ticket for throwing a knife. You turn in a ticket for throwing a javelin. You turn in a ticket for throw, for shooting some arrows. You turn in a ticket for sword fighting. Okay. And then all the income goes to a local charity. That's a great idea. And That's a really good idea. This helps lots of people. It helps the charity. Yeah. It allows my students to come in and spend more time playing with toys. Yeah. And it brings in new people that get to see how much fun it is. The other thing I do is on the back of my business card, uh, I think I have one right here. It, I'm going to show you. I know it's we're not videotaping this one for the for everybody else, but on the back, oh no, that's an old one. It says, "Bring this in for three free lessons, referred <laughs> by," and then oh. they write on who referred them, so I can personally thank. Whoever passed that card on. That's clever. I mean, I did for a long time on the back of my business card. Um, it had a 10% off um, a beginner's course thing. But there wasn't a referral thing. The referral thing is genius. And that's what I learned from the real estate agents. Huh. Okay. Yeah, because, all right. There will be people who know nothing about business listening to this thinking, this all sounds a little bit scammy, right? And there are certainly people who use these techniques in a scammy way or for scammy purposes. But I think it's probably worth flagging out that um, it's actually genuine. They genuinely trust you because you're genuinely trustworthy. And, right. and the, well, the way I think of it, when, when any, any kind of marketing thing that I do, I want it to be absolutely, I want to be absolutely sure that the people receiving it will think that I'm doing them a favor, right? Yeah. So for example, when, when I launch a discount, limited time discount thing for an online course I'm launching or something like that, right? I routinely get emails from my mailing list thanking me for sending them the discount and telling them about the course, which tells me that at least some of the people getting the emails are the right people to be sending them to. Right? Yeah. <clears throat> so I, I guess, I think for me, the distinction is if you do something for people, that's okay. If you do it to them, that's not. Right. And uh, one of the things that they talk about, and I'm a big believer, is you get what you want by helping other people get what they want. Yeah, absolutely. And so my goal is to help people get what they want. And what they want, the ones that come to my school, is most of us grew up watching movies or reading books or playing D&D &D and loved it. And wait, you mean I can do it for real? Right, yeah. And some people want to get into the tournament side of it. Some people have no desire whatsoever to get into tournaments. Some people have no desire whatsoever to even do free play. Sure. And it's their choice, and I give them an avenue to what they want, not 
what I want. Right. Yeah. That's, that's, I, I look at it as I'm a consulting swordsman and it's my job to help people accomplish their sword related goals. Yes. That's how I articulate it. And it doesn't actually matter to me what those goals are. If they right. want to train for a tournament, I can help them with that. It's probably, they're probably actually better off going to somebody else for that because it's not really my area of specialty because I'm not that interested in it, but I can certainly do it. And if I'm the only one available, then, you know, they could do a lot worse. But, um, yeah, it's, it doesn't actually matter to me what the student's starting position is or what their goals actually are, as long as obviously the goals are like ethical and reasonable. Right. When I'm on set, whether it's on stage choreographing or on a TV or movie set, I always tell the stunt coordinator or director, I'm hired help. You tell me right. what you want, I'll make it work for you. The only time I'll say no is when it's a safety issue. Right. Otherwise, yeah. I'll make it work and get you what you want. I do the same thing when I start a seminar. I get all the students around and I say, okay, why am I here? What do you, what do you want? And they usually kind of, if they don't, if it's their first seminar with me, they kind of stand around a bit surprised. And I point out that, you know, Salvatore Fabris was fencing master to the King of Denmark, Right. Who is in charge in that relationship? Right? You know, and if, if the king wants to do, I don't know, parry reposts today without any footwork because his legs are tired, then that's exactly what they do. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. Right? So, and, and again, that's where I sort of got the model of consulting swordsman rather than... Because the whole thing about martial arts instructor is it's very heavily influenced, our, our cultural conception of it is very heavily influenced by martial arts instructors that we've seen on the screen who are almost invariably um, teaching karate or kung fu or something like that, where the social relationship is completely different. Um, yes. So, yeah, it's... it's Yeah, I like a plumber. You know? <laughs> I, I, I don't have to like the colour of the bathroom I'm installing. It's your bathroom, it's your house. But I'll make it's, sure it doesn't leak. I was just reading something <laughs> about the saying, the customer is always right. That's only part of the saying. Yeah. The customer is always right in their taste. Yeah, you like yeah. the color of the suit that they're buying. You may not like the hat. It doesn't matter. It's their taste. Yeah. Our job is to facilitate so that they can get what works for their taste. Yeah, that's very true. Yeah, it's funny. And you know, I segment my sort of client base, customer base differently. Okay, I. I there's four groups okay any given customer is either sophisticated or not sophisticated in other words not how you know how elegantly sophisticated they are but are they an experienced um sort of purchaser of this kind of resource right and you know so in other words have they have they taken martial arts classes before have they done other kinds of training before or whatever i mean generally speaking like a training sergeant in the US Army is going to be a sophisticated customer of my products because he'll spot bullshit. Yeah. Um, which I would hope wouldn't be there, but you know, so there's sophisticated and unsophisticated. Most beginners are unsophisticated, but sometimes they have lots and lots of background in other things, which actually makes them a sophisticated customer. Okay. And then I okay or not okay. Right. And an okay customer is someone who respects my time and their own, 
pays appropriately and on time. Um, and a sophisticated customer is likely to be quite demanding, but those demands will be sort of reasonable. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Whereas the not okay customer is someone who, um, you know, well, for example, rips off one of my books and sticks it on the internet. For instance. Yeah. Or, right? or just, just a for instance. Yeah. Or or I had one I, I had to beat one student out of my school. He liked to go really hard on women. Um and then I was like, why don't you and I play? And he backed out of the ring, so I turned around to walk back into the ring and he attacked my back. Oh and I heard a I heard a inhalation and I turned around and covered my back. And okay, I can play that game with you. So I backed him into a pillar and proceeded to beat him into a pillar. And I never <laughs> saw him again. I can play that game too if you want. Yeah, uh, it's, it's funny. As a martial arts instructor, if we have to do that, we have at some level failed to spot the problem before it occurred. Yeah. Right? So, but, but, but we have to be able to do that if necessary. Yeah. Uh, but the the other thing I would say, I want to backtrack just a little bit. Yeah. Sure. Uh, one of the things I tell people that are looking at starting a school and going professional. Yeah. Get a credit card company. So it's what? automatic payments. Oh, yeah, absolutely. You need automatic payments. Otherwise, you never – you can never – count on the money being there when you need to pay rent. Right. And it, to be clear, like particularly in Europe, it doesn't have to be a credit card company. I mean, I set it up with my students in Finland. Um, they had, the, they have very simple sort of monthly standing order things that they would use. They didn't have to use a credit card, but you have to have some system for automating payments. I remember um, my guys in Seattle told me that their, all of their financial problems were solved when they started using, I think it was PayPal, and the default way of paying training fees was a standing order. The, the money yeah. just left the account. Right. And so they could cancel it at any time, but they had to decide to cancel it rather than decide to pay it. And it makes all the difference to cash flow. Every yeah. summer in my early years, I wanted to quit. Every summer. <laughs> yeah. Because people yeah. go on vacation and not pay right. their rent. And I'm like, i got to figure out how to pay rent. Yeah. I, I once had a student come to me and say that he's paid up for the month, but he's going on vacation for a couple of weeks up north, so he can't be training. Can he just pay yeah. half? And I'm like, well, I don't have to just pay half of my salary rent just because you're not coming. So that's yeah. a no. And he quit. Yeah. And there's another example of a not okay customer. The yeah, okay customer, the, yeah, absolutely. And the okay student understands that it's that they're not just paying for your time right now. They're paying for the school to continue to exist. Because if people yeah. like them don't show up and pay their training fees, the school will cease to exist. I've had people yeah. ask me that same kind of thing. I say, I understand where you're coming from. Uh, but no, because... I want to have doors open for when you come back. Right. Yeah. That's just maybe a slightly nicer way of putting it. 
Um, I think I actually. I've also, always been a little nicer than you guys. <laughs> That's probably true. <laughs> That's probably true. Um, yeah. So I I find though like the best filter for the not okay customers is the beginners course because if you make it nice and friendly and supportive and clearly we're all in this together then the people that want a different culture will go somewhere else and get it right 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 it's like it's maybe a bit a bit too nice for them you know a bit too friendly and that's okay too that's right absolutely uh, and and i often actually have i have students who come and ask for you know um who ask for a like a particular style of training and i'm like look i just we just don't do that here but i have a friend who runs uh, i think what you're looking for over there go train with him yeah yeah i refer people all over the country uh, right that, that's the other thing about being in business understand that there are enough clients enough students for all of us that's right I don't need to be so stingy that I'm afraid to refer somebody to someone else because it might take a little bit of money out of my wallet. Right. Yeah. There are enough for all want, of us and, and not everybody works students. well. Yeah. Like, you know, if a student ends up deciding that they're happier doing a screamer, then off they yeah. go and do a screamer and that's great. And, you know, I have friends who teach a screamer who do it very well and off they go. Brilliant. And some, some students do both. Um, I, but yeah, I have, I have uh, four different teachers that work for me. Right. And one of the things I like about having multiple instructors is that my style of instructing may not be right for everybody. Right. So, and it's all right. It's no, it's no reflection on me, nor is it a reflection on the student. It just, I may sure. not be the perfect fit. Uh, I was on movie set one time doing a, uh, yeah, it was a tough role. I was the sword instructor. <laughs> yeah, the big D for that one. And I asked the director, okay, what kind of sword instructor, what kind of instructor do you want? I can be Mr. Miyagi or I can be Cobra Kai. Which one yeah. do you want? Because I can give you either, either one on set. And... In my school, if somebody wants Cobra Kai, I'm the wrong fit for them. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, so, I guess this is really about getting and keeping the right students. Um, so, yes. how, do you, how do you know? Okay. How do you know two things about moving schools from one place to another? Right. Firstly, how do you know when the space isn't big enough and therefore it's worth upgrading? And secondly, do you lose students when you move from one place to another? When I'm working in a school or a facility and I find the way I find if it's not going to fit for the amount of people I have anymore is when swinging a sword becomes dangerous to those around. If there's not enough oh, sure. room, 
Yeah, yeah, no, I, I get that. But but there are other things you can do rather than just move to a bigger space. I mean, you can, for example, split the classes up so you have instead of one class on a particular night, you split it into two classes. So you, for instance, right? Well, for yes, um, <laughs> but the way I'm at where I'm at right now is mm-hmm. on Mondays we start classes at six p.m. and yeah. end at ten p.m. Each yep. class is one hour, mm-hmm. but it's not uncommon to have two or three classes going on at the same time. Two or three uh, different classes. Okay. Right. So, uh, Longsword is our most popular class. Mm-hmm. So, we have a 6 p.m. Longsword, but then at 7, we have a Sword and Shield class and a Dagger class going on at the same time. Okay. On at Eight, we have a grappling class and another class, and then nine is just longsword again. Uh, oh wow, so that's that's pretty busy. Yeah, and then on Tuesdays we have our longsword class and a kids longsword class. We call them the dragon slayers. <laughs> our dragon slayers are ages eight to thirteen, and then okay. thirteen they move into the adult class. Okay. Uh, so we've got those going on at the same time. Then, and so we have multiple classes going on mm-hmm. at the same time. And if I can't figure out a way to get these classes to work, then you that's when space. I know. Yeah. So do you lose students when you move from one place to another? Not generally, as long as I don't go too far. I mean, I'd love okay. to bring the school down by where I live, but mm-hmm. in the Bay Area... We judge distance by time, not by miles. Yeah. Right. So uh, there's heavy traffic and congestion. So uh, it would be an extra 30 minutes on top of the normal time. Yeah. And then I'd lose more than half of my students. So sure. it's not, not viable. Not viable. But as long as I stay in the same area... I don't lose students. Not enough to be, um, not not enough to affect it really. Okay, but but I, I've only moved Sal once, right? I rented this space in Helsinki in June two thousand and one, and then about the school kind of sort of expanded and contracted and expanded and contracted. But it was like just too big for the space by about two thousand seven, and the Space across the hall that was more than twice as big became available, and so I bought it. And so we moved literally across the hall in the same building, right? Nice. You go to the top of the stairs, turn right into the old style, turn left into the new one. Okay. <laughs> I say new style, it's been like 14 years now, um, longer. Um, but I think it must be a coincidence, but there was a catastrophic drop in attendance for the next three months. And I thought, really? oh my God, yeah, yeah. And yeah, I, and of course, the expenses of running a place that's twice as big are twice yeah. as much and the risks and what have you. And, you know, I you know, secured the mortgage on my apartment and everything. So it was like massively risky and stressful. Um, <laughs> but, but yeah, it was like three months or so. And then suddenly attendance picked right back up again. I think it must be a coincidence. I think that was probably going to happen anyway. 
Yeah, one of the one of the things that I do for I think our job is just to get get people in the door. That's mm-hmm. everybody's job. Then your job, my job is to keep them. Ah, I disagree. Okay? My job is to give them a true and faithful representation of the art as I see it so that they can make an informed decision about whether it's for them or not. I don't actively try to keep them. I keep them by keeping them entertained and learning. Okay. Uh, but I get them in the door through student referrals. Yeah. Uh, but I also use things like Groupon and uh, Amazon has some things where – so you can sign up on my website for three free hours. Yeah. Or you can go to Groupon and get four hours for – half the price of a month-long membership. Okay. And so, either way, I get them in the door. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and you get them in the door, the more importantly, part. you get them in the door for more than one session. Yes, because if it's only one, it doesn't, they don't get the sense. Yeah. Um, so, that that's what I do to get people in the door. And then I also set up... Uh, I, I spent years putting together a curriculum. So each class, we have longsword, dagger, grappling, side sword, rapier, sword and shield, uh, be safe, which is a modern day self defense system based on fjord. Okay. But everything ru- ends with you running away. Good. Um, and then lightsaber, which is a combination of longsword and sidesword okay. with flashy twirly bits. <laughs> Do you know, I just interviewed someone, the man who taught Samuel L. Jackson how to use a lightsaber and who was the body double for Count Dooku in those early Star Wars episodes. Oh, Kyle. Yeah, you know Kyle. Of course you know Kyle. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, I'm not sure when this interview will be coming out relative to yours, uh, but the fascinating lightsaber. I would say... From your list, small sword is a glaring omission. I don't like small sword. Ah! How can you say that? How can you say that? It is, it is the most vicious, nasty, like sadistic and twisted way of murdering a person you could possibly imagine. You stab them full of little triangular holes. Yeah, I, uh, I, the, I like, uh, I start at the, uh, oh, I also do, Cutlass, Tomahawk, those things. But Cutlass and Saber are pretty much where I stop. Military Saber. Yeah. Okay. Oh, Steve. <laughs> I remember Steven, Steven. I used to fight, like you said earlier, I'd fight anybody with anything. And I remember fencing you with small swords. <laughs> Did I put you off? And I was so, I mean, I could pick up anything and fight with it. Yeah. And I was so frustrated and angry. I mean, I, I didn't, you didn't, oh, you trounced me. It wasn't, it wasn't even close. But it's not like I just laid down and you poked me a lot. I made you work a little bit for it. <laughs> yeah. But it was I mean, so frustrating. I'm sorry. Well, okay. So if I'd let you win a little bit. <laughs> then you might have taken up small sword and, and had a properly well-rounded curriculum. <laughs> maybe, maybe. 
<laughs> Damn. Small sort of people out there, I do apologize for turning Stephen away from the true and noble path. <laughs> um, well, okay. Speaking of like stabbing people, um, you're quite well known for your Joseph Sweatman stuff. And in fact, the last time I actually saw you in person, if I remember rightly, was in Vancouver and you were teaching a Sweatman class. Yes. So how, how, what drew you to that raging misogynist and his rapier ways? Oh, he is a total jerk, but really good at what he does with the okay. rapier. Um, my mentor, and that's the other thing I'd say to everybody, find a mentor. You can't do this on your own. Even Tiger Woods has a coach. Yeah, right. Um, my mentor started me on Rapier and Dagger from Swetnam back in 97. He was a fencer, saber fencer, who started in 1942. Bloody hell. And he started me on uh, John Hudson. Okay. He he started me on Rapier and Dagger from Swetnam and then gave me a copy of the manuscript. And so I just followed that and worked on getting the um, the system down and playing with it and then researching him uh, because, as you said, he was a raging misogynist. But what's interesting is when he wrote his his plays, the rebuttals, this young lady says, I thought it was somebody important, but it was just a fencing master from Bristol. Right. Well, that's a seaport. And when you look at the way he says to stand with your feet in line, everybody wants to stand like modern fencing where you L or T. Mm -hmm. But if you stand with them on line, it works really well on a moving deck. Yeah, sure. So... I think he was a gentleman adventurer of the 16th century. Okay. And I really enjoyed the way the motions and the... Uh, coming from an armored background, it didn't have this funny bent-over thing like Fabris, right? Sure. Or it, it was much easier on my body coming from armor mm -hmm. to stand more upright. And I remember... <laughs> One of my favorite tournaments was an instructor tournament at IceMac. It was you, yeah, me, yeah. you, me, and Tom Leone. Oh, God, I remember. It went round and round and round. It did. You beat me. Yeah. I beat Tom. Tom beat you. And we did this like three times. And finally, Jared Kirby was like, we're just going to call it here. <laughs> Everybody's a winner. Because we just kept going around in this circle. And uh, so I, I, I dig Swetnam because it allows you free movement uh, that can work on a moving platform. So whenever I'm like on a train or a bus or something, I actually stand in foot, Swetnam's footwork and it allows me to maintain my balance on this platform. And it's also okay. how I practice. Uh, but that's how I got into Swetnam. Right, because John Hudson told you to, and you decided yes. you liked it. And okay. it was in English, and I could read it. That helps. That really does help. I mean, the, I think Swetnam's abiding virtue when it comes to rapier fantasy is the fact that he wrote his treatise in English, because he was yeah. English. And that really, really makes things a lot easier. There's a whole layer of interpretation that you don't have to bother with. 
Um, but, okay. What makes Swetnam's style of fencing different to, say, the Italian school of the early 17th century? Because they're pretty much contemporary. Swetnam's uh, treatise came out in 1617, was it? Correct, 1617. Um, 1617. So, seven, seven years of 1610. 1610. Um, ah. I actually have, I have a 1610 Capofero in that. I'm going to go and get it. <laughs> <laughs> listeners, I'm terribly sorry, but regular listeners will go, oh, God, guys dragging his fantasy book out again. But, you know, when there's somebody sitting there in front of me who would appreciate this, yeah. this is this is the 1610 Capoferro, and this this copy of this book was printed in 1609 or 1610, and it is entirely original and unfucked about with, and it is it's, very, very beautiful. And that's lovely, lovely. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I did not realize that it was a soft binding. Um, well, okay. Books in that period, um, you bought the pages and then had them bound. And if you were a professional bookseller, you'd buy up a bunch of these printed books and you would bind them in your own particular way and then you'd sell them, right? Or you'd have your binding up. If you were a rich person buying books because you had this bizarre fascination for buying books... Um, you would have your own binder who would, or you would hire a binder who would bind them in the style of your library. Yeah. Um, okay. So, for instance, Vadi from the 1480s, um, manuscript scholars are particularly interested in Vadi's manuscript for its cover because it is one of the very few surviving original covers from uh, the Duke of Urbino's bindery, right? So, um, yeah, the book, the publisher of the book, or the printer and the bookbinder and the bookseller and whatever, it was all quite separate and different. And like, like in, in like sword if, you study, if you studied your small sword, you would know this because Angelo says <laughs> that, you know, you buy a, he talks about like, you, know, you buy a blade and you test it and whatever, and then you have it fitted to the hilt. Yeah. Right. So, yeah, okay, you could buy a whole sword. But it was also common practice to buy a blade and have it hilted. Right. And even that's why, uh, well, we're getting way off track, but that's why it's so hard to uh, categorize the swords because I might buy a blade in Germany and get it hilted in France and then sell it in England. Right. Where did that sword come from? It came from my house. It's my sword. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's right. Um, Okay. So, so Swetnam. 1617. So what um, makes it different from the other different? Italian? Yeah, or from the uh, Italians, yeah. Well, do you, do you think he studied with the Italians? Oh, I think he did. He says he traveled for 30 years. He says he was okay. in, um, uh, he's, he studied at, or no, he went to Cambridge and Oxford, but was only there long enough to tie up his horse. Okay. So he's constantly on the move. Um, He's very English in that he cuts into his thrusts. So unlike okay, okay. Capofero... Hang on, two things there. Firstly, what is cutting into the thrust? Because the average listener probably has no idea what you're talking about. And secondly, why is that particularly English? So uh, English martial arts of that period are very much a bastardized version of Italian. Horseshit. 
I I disagree. I think they really are. <laughs> okay, okay. All right. By English martial arts, are you talking about the martial arts that George Silver is talking about? Or yes. are you talking about... So you think oh, no, George... no, no, not Silver. No, 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 not Silver. Okay. Silver is okay, totally so how... English. Okay, because English martial arts are, as in, like, as George Silver is, what, as George Silver is no. describing... No, more like the uh, medieval. No, more like right. the medieval, right? Okay. Those are bastards. We'll see that in the uh, Saber as well of the 19th century. Okay, so... so the Silver average, is not. No, the average English gentleman of the late 15, early 1600s is fencing in an Italian style. I think there we can agree. Yes. Okay, but so, that doesn't make them English martial arts. Okay, so then okay. Uh, silver and that style is all about the cut. Fly in, fly out, all that stuff. Yeah, yeah. Um, Swetnam is very English. He likes to cut more than thrust. He says, use your... Um, Use your rapier as you would your back sword. Oh, God. Okay. Right, um, yes. When we look at Capoferro, he works in primarily Secunda and Cart. With some... Uh, some and Cart. Okay. With, most there are most, others, but primarily. Most thrusting actions are done in Secunda or Quarta. Yes, absolutely. Yes. Yeah. Swetnam cuts in Terza in third because he cuts or he thrusts he cuts into... His thrust, so it's like a backsword cutting into that thrust. Okay. Uh, so his guards, like true guard, start with the edge facing the opponent, so you can cut into it. Ah, so he's not pointing it at your opponent, his opponent's eye. He's pointing it above. He's pointing it Correct. up so he can cut down. Okay. Correct. Um, which, coming from that armored background, really fit my... Yeah, sure. Mentality. Yeah, okay. I like to get in close and let them know that their choices were poor. <laughs> but didn't, didn't he also have, doesn't Swetnam also recommend an incredibly long dagger? A four foot sword and a two foot dagger. He says that you should be able fucking enormous. He says you should be able to lunge, do a 12 foot lunge. Can you do a 12 foot lunge? With the proper sized rapier, yes. I actually got my hands on one, and okay. I was stretched out, but I could make a 12-foot lunge and recover from it. Okay. But well, okay. it's when like it a four-foot rapier. Yeah, okay. And that's just blade. Yeah, okay. So my my rapier has a 42-inch blade from the cross guard to the point. So you're talking about something that's six inches longer than that. Yes. Okay. Now, I've actually um, done measurements where I lie on my back and extend my sword arm above my head and we get the absolute maximum distance from the outside of my left foot to the point of my sword, okay? Which is the anatomically longest possible distance between those two points, right? Okay. And then then put one of the tape measure on the wall, on the wall target, and mark that distance to the ground, make a mark, I put my back foot on it and I can hit the target. That's using Capoferro's mechanics. Okay. Right. So it is measurably the longest possible lunge you can make with the human body. And of course, I can make it longer by having a longer sword, but I couldn't make it longer any other way. Right. right. It is mechanically as long as it can possibly go. And I've written this up um, 
listeners, I'll put a link in the show notes, um, or you can search my blog for Max Your Lunch. Right, okay. That said, um, what is it about Swetnam's lunch that makes it so long? Two things. One is the length of the blade, the sword. Right. Okay. Secondly, that's an extra six said, inches. Okay. He says that your left, your back foot should stay in place and hold you as an anchor holds the ship in place. Yep. Which is why I think he, one of the reasons he has a lot of nautical references in his manuscript, mm-hmm. which is why I think, and coming from Bristol, which is why I think he was a gentleman adventurer on ship. Okay. And if you think about the way an anchor holds a ship in place, it rotates around that anchor point. And so if I rotate on my toe, my heel turns in, that gives me a little extra distance as well. It gives you five extra inches, right? And I, well, at least it gives me five extra inches because Capaferra explicitly, yeah, the Capaferra explicitly refers to the turning of the back foot in his, in his lunging plate. Okay, so, so there, there, there we agree entirely. Okay, so, so that gives you the extra between five the length inches. of the sword and the turning of the foot, which holds you in place as the anchor holds the ship, you get longer distance. That's the extra six inches on the blade, and those five inches as you turn. That's a place. foot almost. Yeah. Um, although when I'm doing the measurement with Maxwell Lunge, I reserve the turning of the back foot for penetration. Because it's not enough just to touch the target. You have to actually shove the sword into it. Right. So I, I have the foot like uh, perpendicular to the line of attack on the, on the ground. And I can reach the target, but I can't really hit it. And then with the turn of the foot, I can actually shove the blade five inches in, which is right. sufficient. More than enough, yeah. Yeah. Uh, okay. So that's why he can get that. And I was teaching at SoCal Sword Fight earlier okay. this year and one of my friends who's massive he's really tall he has a rapier that he got from arms and armor that has a four foot blade okay and with that i could lunge 12 feet how tall are you my foot. i am 510 okay so yeah you're a couple of inches taller than me or an inch taller than something like that. Okay, interesting. And of course, and you, then if you do that with a cut. What's that? Sorry, you, you do that with a cut. Yeah, so the extension and the cutting helps yeah. pull me forward as opposed to just the line. Okay. I, I don't think that's going to make mechanically any difference to the reach. It's Not true. to the reach, but to the um, explosiveness. Okay. This is something where we need to get together and actually test it, I think. Yes. <laughs> so, I love I love Sweatnam and the way he uses his dagger. The other thing I like about Sweatnam is he tells you four ways not to use your dagger. Huh? Okay, um, what are they? Don't don't take it too high. So never above eye level, your eye level. Okay. Don't take it too low. He calls it his girdle stead. So don't yeah. take your dagger below your girdle stead. Don't take it too far to the side and don't yeah. take it behind you. Okay. Pull your elbow back or follow it behind your shoulder. And if I don't do those four things, mm-hmm. my dagger stays in front of me 
and that gives me a wider cone of defense with my dagger allowing me to uh, and because my body is squared up, not profiled, I'm mm-hmm. able to just walk my point right in along their sword arm. Okay, and I think that's one of the really distinctive features of Swetnam's style, is that he's not profiled. He is not. He is squared up. So he's, he's fighting with a rapier, and he's basically... I mean, he's not like completely square on, but he's maybe 45 degrees off the line, or rather than... No, he's squared up. Because he says to to practice his stance, he says, put your heels against the wall with your back touching the wall. Step your right foot forward so your toes are in front of your, your, your heels in front of your toes. And then bend your back knee so your back rests on the wall. Okay, I'm doing that right now. You tell me if I'm doing it right. I'm just going to move the camera. Okay. Okay. All right. So So with your back touching the wall... Now, right foot just in front of your left foot. So you leave the wall. Now bend your back knee so that your back rests against the wall. And that's the stance? Yep. Oh my god, let me get where you can see my feet. He Ah says you can... It. People say that the danger is that your head is within closer reach to his point than your stomach. Yep, that's it. Now, imagine you're on a train or a boat and rock forward and back and side to side. Yeah. Huh. That gives you... Which is very similar to the stance that Fabris teaches, except that he bends forward. It's yeah, So fa- we see Fabris, the similarities. Fa- Fabris would have a feet similarly spaced but the legs are much straighter and you hinge forward from the hip most of the time. But the stance is the same. Stance is very similar, yeah. And the other thing that he says is that your knees should be a fist apart. Your that knees. one took me a while. Yeah, a your fist knees apart. Your should be a fist apart. Do you ah, know what a fist really... is? Yes, it's... Um, it's yeah. So it's, it's also called a fist meal, which is... Um, my grandfather taught me this when he was teaching me how a longbow should be strung. And he right. said the distance between the inside of the handle and the string when you string the bow should be a fist meal, which was you put your fist on the bow and you stick your thumb up. But then he said you could also double it by putting a second fist underneath if you want a very high string. Now, I was six or so when he told me that, so I may have misremembered, but I remember that a fist or a fist meal is... Usually and that's the, it. The, the Pinky the, to the extended thumb. And yeah. that took me a long time because I had to research archery to right, understand the... And again, English. The English longbow. Dude, you could have just asked me. <laughs> I didn't know you were that old. <laughs> so, yeah, that's... One of the things I love about what we do is it's so much more than the sword. There's all the research yeah. that goes into so many other aspects of the society of the time. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's quite, a, quite a broad project. Or it's, as broad, well, it's like what you were saying earlier about running a school. It is a mistake to just look within your own field. Yeah. Um, it's like, you know, I love most of what I know about actually making a living doing this. From 
people like, well, for example, Joanna Penn, who's been on this show, um, who she has nothing to do with swords at all, but she writes books and makes a decent living doing it because she knows how to sell books. And what she says, and you'll like this, is you want to basically give people enough content, free content, that they know you, like you, and trust you, and they're pleased to hear about it when you bring out something they can buy. Right? That goes back to you are making and selling relationships. That's right. Yeah. Uh, um, one of so, the, yeah, so, uh, that's right, go ahead. One of the uh, interviews I did on the I – I did a thing called the pandem- Pandemic Interview Series. It was oh, just yeah. something during the pandemic, to, and that's where I had you on my show. Yeah, yeah, just, yeah. You interviewed me. Yeah. Just talking about with, a way to talk with people about different aspects. Uh, I talked to actors, directors, uh, martial artists, but one of the guys I talked to, a couple of guys I talked to, are professional cl- clowns. One is wow. in Australia, and the other one is a professional clown and children's entertainment specialist. So he does the clown, Spider-Man, Jedi Knight things for okay. parties. And we talked about marketing. And, right. And also valuing yourself. Right. So many of us, we love what we do, and there's a tendency to want to give it away. But if you don't put a value on it, why should anybody else value it? Yeah. Fair. And so it's important that you recognize the value that you bring to whatever event you're doing. And they are paying you not just for that hour that you're there or that few hours. They're paying you for all the years that you spent working on that. And if you're doing demonstrations, they're also paying you for the equipment that yeah, you're sure. using in the demonstration. Yeah. Do you remember my friend Num, the Kung Fu yeah. instructor? Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. I remember staying over at his uh, school. Yeah, that's right. Um, okay. He used to say to his students, you don't pay me for my time because you couldn't afford it. And you don't pay me for the art because it is beyond price. You pay me to compensate me in some small measure for the pain and suffering I endure watching you butcher my beloved art. It's like, <laughs> no, that is not how you speak to your students. No, no, no. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You're I, paying me to watch you butcher this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so... so um, yeah, I mean, see, I never have have problem a problem putting a price on a book, right? Because it's a it's an object, and other people have made it. You know, they printed it and bound it, and there it is, right? But it took me a long time to get my head around the idea that I should charge really properly for my time. And okay, forget this. For ten years, I didn't raise my weekend seminar prices. Right, yeah. it was a weekend with me. It was a thousand euros in two thousand one, and it was a thousand euros in twenty ten. And then I realised I'd effectively dropped while improving massively as an instructor over those first ten years, as one would hope. I managed to, um, like, basically cut my prices by about fifteen percent or something. It was stupid. Right, <laughs> so I sorted that out, and it's you know, these days you know I raise my prices regularly and all that sort of thing, and 
Um, I have these days. I am perfectly happy to turn down people who who don't value my time. Right. Um, That's something that I need to do with my weekend workshops is raise those and my, but my uh, demonstrations have gone up every other so, year. Yeah, yeah that's sensible. Um, the thing is though, like there are people who can pay properly um, if they choose to, and there are people who simply can't whether they choose to or not. Right. So I have no problem working for free. Right. I will work for free in all sorts of situations. Okay. Like, for example, um, I recently taught a seminar um, for an, a fledging little group and they couldn't possibly afford to pay my regular evening fees because, you know, they just, yeah. there weren't enough people and it. it's just they weren't set up for it. So they paid their usual hall fee and a donation to a charity of my choice. So I worked for free, but they... Paid a little extra more than they normally would, and that money went to a charity. And everybody right. knew that's what's happening, right? So it wasn't guy teaches for free. It's guy will sometimes work pro bono in service of a charity, which is not the same thing as teaching for free. The other thing I'll do sometimes is I barter with people. Okay. Because there are people that have skills that I don't have. Sure. There are people that like to do things that I despise. <laughs> like accounting. Accounting. I have <laughs> a person that does accounting for me, and oh, I trade services with her. Really? Yeah. Honestly, my accountant just wants money. And so I've, I've been paying my accountants since I started. I mean, I when I moved to Finland uh, in 2001 to start my school, I knew there was no way I could do my accounts in Finnish with the Finnish tax office and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. So I got myself an account straight away. Yeah. Right? And, and yeah. I've never, ever regretted it. The other thing to remember is for anybody who's thinking about doing this, mm -hmm. this is a business, not a hobby. They are two different things. Yeah. And if as you're doing a business, it for a you have to treat it like a business. But yeah. that also means that there are perks. You know, uh, when you and I get together, guy, and... We have a few beers and we talk swords. We're at work. Yeah, that's right. Business expense. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, no question. Um, and, you know, the equipment for setting up this podcast, business expense. Yep. Of course. Because it's all part of the thing. When I buy a sword, business expense. Yep, business expense. Although... Buy a new computer. Let, yeah. Yeah, let the record show. That cap of ferro does not belong to my company. That belongs yeah. to me. <laughs> actually most of the stuff in my school belongs to me and I rent it to the school uh, that's a good way to do it that's a very good way to do it that completely sidesteps the um, capital problem and that way when I go to sell my school I'm actually training somebody to take over my school oh good yeah uh, I was wondering that way I can go and spend more time doing movies and TV stuff because I want to get into that side of it Okay. I want to bring what we do to the screen. Okay. And, but I can't leave if there's nobody to take over the school and I know that it'll right. be in good hands while I'm gone. Yeah. Uh, not to say that I'm going to stop going to the school. It just means I can go in and teach when I want. Right. And still get paid. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, I, so, I, I, I retired from my Helsinki school in 
2015 um, and moved to the UK in 2016. So I've not been teaching there regularly. It's still running. Yeah. The style is still there and it's still still operating. So maybe something we should get together and talk, you know, how, how, how do we do the handover? Yeah. Yeah. And so, I mean, uh, Johnny is my number one. He's the one I'm teaching to take over the school. Because I own the stuff and I rent it to the school, if I were to sell the school outright, not only do they get my database, not only yeah. do they get my facility, they also have to pay me for the equipment that goes into it. There's a rental contract there. Yeah. That's a good way to do it. I hadn't thought of that. Hmm. Interesting. And that also means because I'm an LLC, yeah, that is one more separation. Yeah. Yeah, and, and you need that. I mean, I I have a limited liability company here in the UK and I have another one in Finland. The Finnish one I started, I don't know. I started out as a sole trader and then after about six years, I got some good advice and that advice included, no, you've got to be a limited liability company. So yeah. I switched. And when I moved to the UK, I started a limited liability company straight away because you need that need that legal separation between, particularly as a self-employed person, actually, between yeah. yourself and the company. And the company has its own kind of needs and interests and whatnot that you yourself may not want to particularly be involved with. Right. Yeah. So that's, what, that's another reason why I say you have to treat it like a business, yeah. not a hobby. If you want to do it professionally. If, yeah. If you don't, it's a great hobby. Yeah, yeah. You want to yeah. just go out to the park and meet with your friends and have a study group? Fantastic. Have a yeah. great time. Yeah. And actually, that's how most people do it. And that's how probably most people should do it. Because running is it. I have found, because I've, I've turned a different hobby into a job before when I was, when I turned my woodworking hobby into being a professional cabinet maker. And it made me fucking miserable. It was a yeah. bad job for me. And I am much, much happier as a, as an amateur cabinet maker than I ever was as a professional. Um, but on the swords, I, I don't want to have to go and do something else for a living. I've got too much sword stuff to do. And so I, it has to be a full-time job because I don't want to be, I don't want anything else to take up a full-time job's worth of my time. Yeah. Um, and, and understand that if you're doing this professionally, it's too easy to stop working on your own skills because oh, you focus yeah. on everybody else. Yeah. So it will suffer. Your skills will suffer until you find a way to continue working on your own skills. Okay. I know how I did that. How did you do it? Uh, when I go to seminars, I take every class I can when I'm not teaching. Whether I agree with them or not, I'm going to learn something from them. Sure. When I'm out talking to other people, regardless, I always try to learn from them. And then I also spend time when I'm teaching, working on one thing for me while I'm teaching. Right? Yeah. Because I'm throwing an attack at this student for them to work on. I am making sure that attack is 100% perfect. Yeah, sure. Demonstrations are really useful. Um, My favorite thing 
people to teach are beginners. Oh, God, yes, me too. Because that means when I teach beginners, I am working on the fundamentals every single time. Yeah. And there's nothing complicated in a sword fight. It is only a string of simple things put together in different orders. Bingo. And advanced technique is just basic technique done really, really well. Yep. Yeah. Um, Do you know my rule of beginners? No. Okay. My rule of beginners is this. If you show it to them right a thousand times, they will eventually copy it correctly. You show it to them wrong once, they will copy it perfectly first time. Yep. Uh, a great it's book true, I isn't read. It? It's just true. Yeah, yeah, there's there's a great book I read that I would yeah. highly suggest to anybody watching this or listening to this. The Talent Code. Okay. It It's a guy in Alaska in the middle of winter wanted to figure out how does Tiger Woods dribble a golf ball on a golf club. Right. And so he did that and then he got really interested in the how the mind works and the neural circuitry and what creates how do you learn something and he went to a little music recording studio in Tennessee that has put out some of the most famous country western singers uh, he went to this little tennis school in Russia that has tennis players in every Olympics and different things like this. Right. What is similar in all of these places around the world that put the best of the best out in the world? Okay. And what he found, it's a constant review of the basics. Right. Always practice your um, scales on the piano. First thing. Yep. Always practice a simple recovery with your tennis racket. Right. Do the and basics us, over and over. For, for, for me, that is 99% of my practice, I would say, is footwork and point control. And mine is footwork and guards. Okay. There you go. Yeah. And, you know, it's... Oh, oh, and incidentally, in case people think we're disagreeing, I when I say footwork, in my head, that includes... Guards. And I spent quite a lot of time just standing in guard, thinking about being in guard, feeling what it's like to be in guard. How can I make this guard better? And blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Yeah. So. It's a, it's like a tutta porta de ferro. Open iron door. Yeah. Hold on. If you touch the sword with your thumb, you manipulate a small muscle in the front of your shoulder and it turns you inside and it affects your point. Mm-hmm. And if you don't touch it, you open that shoulder up and it allows you greater mobility. And it's right. these small things that make you perfect because practice makes permanent. Right. Perfect, perfect practice, practice makes, perfect. makes perfect. Yes, that's very true. Okay. Now, um, I have a couple of questions that I ask all of my guests. I don't know if you listen to the podcast. Many of my guests do not listen to my podcast, and that's perfectly okay. Um, what is the best idea you haven't acted on? Or do you act on every good idea you get? <laughs> I act on almost every idea I get. Doesn't mean it's a good idea. <laughs> Fair enough. But if I'm afraid to try something... 
I'll never find things that I didn't expect. Yeah. So I'll try just about anything. Yeah, Either it'll work or it won't. If it works, great. If it didn't, I learned something. Right. So I try everything. Yeah, and uh, like I have I have friends who are good at various things and when they say, Guys, wanna come and try this thing? If I have the time in my schedule, I will always say yes. Yeah. Because like you know, that's how I, I know what it's like to scuba dive because I've done it once and it was awesome and I loved it. Um and it was this completely alien set of skills, which involve, for example, breathing while your face is underwater. And that is not yeah. a normal thing to do. That is a weird thing to do. You shouldn't do that. Except, of course, you have to, to scuba dive. Right? right. I tried, I tried uh, jumping out of a plane for the same reason. Do you know, I can't do that until my youngest child turns 18. Uh, it was a but 50th birthday present from my bride. <laughs> what is Sue trying to tell you? <laughs> I think I have good life insurance. <laughs> I think you better. I don't think my wife would buy me jumping out of an aeroplane for a birthday present. I think, no, she's, she's, a, she's a little bit worried about me learning to fly, fly planes. Yeah. Because, um, you know, it is, well, one of the scariest things about flying planes is you have all sorts of, drills and procedures you have to learn for when things go very badly wrong. Like, for example, you are taking off and your engine quits. What yeah. do you do? You have approximately three seconds before you stall. And at that point, you're so close to the ground, there's no recovering from the stall, you are fucked. Right? And it's just a matter of luck whether you live or die. But if you drop the nose fast enough, you maintain flying speed and you have about 20 seconds to find some place to put the plane down. Right? It's like, but I don't want to be in an aeroplane where the engine could quit. No, make a better aeroplane. <laughs> no. You want actually, to do what? Yeah, but actually my, my, my favorite thing to do in the plane so far is what's called a glide approach, which is basically you are close to the airfield that you're going to land at anyway, and your engine quits when you're maybe 2,000 feet up. And you have to kind of maneuver around in the glide and get your flaps sorted out and get everything sorted out. And effectively, you do a normal landing because a normal landing is done basically gliding anyway because you, you put the engine to, uh, put the engine to idle. You pull the throttle completely out um, at when you're, I don't know, maybe 100, 200 feet up. Basically, when you're sure you're going to make the field, you cut the engine. And so every landing is done as a glide anyway. But instead of gliding from a couple of hundred feet up, you're having to sort yourself out and get your approach right and everything yeah. with no engine. It's great. It's it's the kind of purest flying. Uh, and that's I, very much I, like that's very much like parachuting. Yeah, I bet. Um, yeah, I, I would love to jump out of an airplane with a parachute, but um, yeah, I've got at least five years to go before. I, I had everybody out. ask me, "Were you nervous? Were you scared?" I said, "Well, I mean, it was fun, but I've been closer to death." <laughs> right. Well, if your chute opens, you're probably going to be fine. <laughs> right. I think the scary so, uh, bit. But did you jump with an instructor with, attached to you? I, I did. I did. Okay. I was tandem. I right, could. So they they won't let you do it alone for the first time. Okay. Because um, there, there, it's it's quite different if you if the chute deploys automatically, um, or if you actually have to remember to pull it. Because one friend of mine. Um, went for 
to this sort of training. And then they jumped out of the airplane. Um, he, he went with a friend and they jumped out of the airplane and his mate was so spaced out and amazed by the whole, uh, oh. he couldn't, he didn't pull his shoe. And the instructor who was kind of skydiving with him was like, pull your fucking shoe and doing all the hand signals that they do to make him pull his shoe. And he was like, oh, it's so amazing, man. Look at this fly. I'm flying. Oh my God, it's so amazing. And he, he pulled his shoe just in time. Oh, good. But, good. But it was horrible for yeah. my friend because it was like, He's my, watching his friend cause, die. Yeah, yeah. because at this point, of course, his shoot is already deployed and he's looking down and he can see that the instructor is like skydiving down with the guy but will, will pull his shoot if he has to to save his own life because he, there's nothing he can do to the guy who's yeah. diving. Right, He can't go and pull his shoot for it. But um, yeah, eventually he managed to kind of get through to the guy that he needs yeah. to pull his fucking shoot. When, when <laughs> I went out, I was strapped to an instructor but I pulled the shoot. Ah, oh, super cool. And yeah. It, it, yeah, I'm looking forward to when I get through that. That's going to be great fun. Like, so, so, yeah, going back to your question, yeah. I try everything. Yeah. Okay. So there, there isn't some niggling project you wish you'd had time for? I don't think so. I mean, and some of the things I've tried have failed. Well, of course. Yeah. So if, if, if everything you try works, you're clearly not trying enough things. Right. Uh, and there's a difference between learning a skill and being lucky. Yeah. And never underestimate the power of luck, but don't rely on it. Yeah. So try yeah, everything I mean, to f- learn what you do and don't like. Yeah. Good advice. Okay. Final question. Somebody offers you a million dollars or so to spend improving historical martial arts worldwide. How would you spend the money? I think I would support fledgling groups. Just a little bit okay. here, a little bit there. And, you know, a couple uh, practice weapons for the ones that can't afford it. Right. So they can okay. get the tools to practice with. Because without so the you- proper tools, you you don't get the full feeling of what you're trying to do. Okay couple of things come to mind. Firstly, so you're talking about setting up a fund that people can apply for to get help buying equipment. Is that? Yeah. Okay. Uh, what to you constitutes proper equipment? That that would be... So if they are... Let's say just for, for long short. Let's keep it simple. For long okay. short, what, what, what in your head constitutes proper equipment? Well, I really don't like... Fetters. No meaning of horrible things. But that's my choice. If there's a group that's working specifically with those, because they're doing that style, I'm not to choose. But I think first and foremost, uh, hands and heads. Okay. I think that's the most important equipment. Okay. So masks, helmets, and bullets. And, yep. And then, uh, then we can get the, um, a sword or two. Okay. Uh, you always buy in pairs because yeah. you're going to want to show your friend and if you only have one, it doesn't work. Yeah. Because they cease to be your friend after you hit them a couple times with a sword and they have nothing. Yeah. Yeah, that's fair. <laughs> okay. So, that's good advice actually. Yes, always buy swords in pairs. Um, 
And in fact, I have since obviously when I was in, in Finland at in the south, we have millions of swords and there's always plenty for everyone. Um, here, I sometimes find myself with a student or I don't know some friend or whatever who wants to have a go at something, and I don't have training equipment for other people. Right? I only have my own gear here, yeah. and yeah, I've got like five longswords here, but four of them are sharp. <laughs> <laughs> and again, so, they will cease to be your friend after that. Yeah, well, quite. Although I know I always give the sharp to my friend because that's fa- that's fair, right? Because, you know, if they cut well, me, it's my defi- fault. But if I cut them, it's their fault. And it's my fault, yeah. too. So, you know, it's my fault either way. So they, they should have the sharp so that, you know, the only person likely to get cut is me. <laughs> um, but, yeah, so I, I have I have a blunt rapier and a blunt longsword. Both of them are in process of coming. Um, so I just so that really I have, like, spares. Yeah. Come by. yeah, you, you, you got to buy in pairs. Yeah. Um, okay, so like equipping, so masks, gauntlets, and a pair of swords. I mean, with a pair of masks, a pair of gauntlets, and a pair of swords, there's an awful lot of training you can get done. There is. And with a million dollars, a million pounds, you can get, you can help start a number of groups with the proper yeah, safety mean, equipment. I would say maybe 500 groups, maybe $2,000 per group, something like that would be plenty. Easily. I mean, yeah. I mean, that wouldn't take – you could do – you could help a lot of different groups and <clears throat> this will spread the word more. Yeah, sure. Into – I study martial arts. Cool. Eastern or Western? <laughs> well, both, obviously. <laughs> the world is round. If you go – West far enough, you end up in the east. That's right. And again, <laughs> look outside of your industry. Right. I focus on Italian and English martial arts. That's my specialty. That does not mean I don't study other arts. Sure. Yeah, me too. My favorite thing is comparing notes with everybody. Yeah, and I actually find it particularly useful comparing notes with, for example, traditional Japanese guys. Because the, the sort of 16th, 17th century Japanese weapons work is very close in many ways to what we Yeah, doing. it is. So is the early Chinese. Okay. Yeah, I've, I've not looked at that in any detail. With the Tao, you see a lot of similarities. Sure. Huh. Okay. Um, and in fact, in the unarmed sense, you look at a lot of the... Asian martial arts and where their hands sit you put weapons in their hands and suddenly they make more sense yes they do Yeah. because why would I punch somebody with my knuckles if I can get a steel or a bronze tool to hit them with right or even a piece of wood I mean that'll do the damage the hand positions don't make sense until you put weapons in it yeah yeah I've 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 seen that I sound like you know Anyone who, who does proper, like, unarmed stuff, they always have their hands up. Yeah. Right? Covering the head, covering the face. Always. Right? And sometimes sometimes they're leaning back a bit like, like 18th century pugilism, and sometimes they're leaning forward. And there's huge variety, but there's always at least one hand at face level to keep the yeah. head protected. But you see these, these Asian martial arts that aren't doing that, 
And yeah, as soon as you put a weapon in those hands, those hands make a lot more sense. Uh, when I teach or play with pugilism, when mm-hmm. I'm right foot forward, I stand in rapier and dagger. Okay, but when yeah. I go left foot forward, I go longsword. <laughs> of course. Actually, and to me, that makes perfect sense. Well, you win. <coughs> Brilliant. Alrighty. Well, thank you very much indeed for joining me today, Stephen. It's been great catching up with you. It's always a pleasure to talk to you, my friend. It's never enough. We need to do it more often. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Stephen. You can find the episode show notes at swordschool.com forward slash podcast. However, let me be absolutely clear. The naked photograph of me and Stevie training on rocks is not in the show notes. So don't dash off there hoping for a sight of Stephen's ass. You won't get one. It's not that kind of show, really. So while you are there, because there are plenty of other things you could be looking up while you're there, you can sign up to my mailing list and I'll send you a free copy of my book, Sword Fighting for Writers, Game Designers and Martial Artists. As always, I'd like to thank my patrons on Patreon for their kind support of the show. It costs money to produce this, and as you may have noticed, I don't do sponsorships, I don't do advertising on the show, so all of the time and all of the costs comes out of my pocket. So my lovely patrons on Patreon help support that work. You can join us there for behind-the-scenes content and to submit your questions for future guests at patreon.com forward slash thesword Thanks, as always, to Andrew Lawrence King for the Baroque harp accents originally recorded for my Paradoxes of Defence audiobook project. Join us next week when I'll be talking to actually a student of Stevens called Sky Hilton. Sky is known in the personal fitness world as the nerd trainer, perhaps because she is a nerd or perhaps because she trains nerds. You're going to have to tune in to find out. She's also a swordsmanship instructor and has various interesting things to say about living in the absolute middle of nowhere and still getting her historical martial arts training in. So you don't want to miss that. So subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcast from. And while you're there, please do rate the show. And if you have an extra minute, leave a review. It really does help. And of course, as always, if you've particularly enjoyed this episode, share it with your friends. Thanks for listening, and I will see you next week. (laughs) 